Hello and welcome to the CityWire Ratings Radar podcast, where we crunch our unique manager performance data and see which fund managers are beating the benchmarks at this extraordinary time. My name is Richard Lander and I'm joined as usual today by my co-host Angus Foote and our data mavens Nisha Long and Frank Talbot. Uh, So, uh, lousy pun coming up, I hope we've all got bags of energy this week because that's where we're going to start. And a reference, of course, to the surreal action in the oil futures market. Uh, at one point last week, you could have sold me a barrel of West Texas Intermediate crude and have to pay me $37 for the privilege. Where I would have put it uh, is anyone's guess, because you meant to store it in Oklahoma. Uh, I don't live terribly close to Oklahoma. There's no flights there and there was no space for storage. But two of us do have oil storage facilities at their house living out in the country frank and frank and angus so maybe i could have parked it around your place is your tank full angus my tank's only about half full it, it's interesting um this is for me that's that's where oil futures hit a sort of hard reality because when i come to refill that tank the price does fluctuate massively quarter to quarter you know half hey, year to half hey. year but so frankly, frankly, you've made a killing, haven't you? Yeah, so I stocked up on, uh, on 1,500 litres of, uh, of kerosene uh, the other day. I paid less than 20p, 20 pence per litre. And to give you some sense about how, how much that's changed, three months ago, I paid the same amount for 500 litres. So huge difference, and I'm all stocked, hopefully, for the next winter. But if your tank was full now, Frank, and you were looking at that low, low price, you'd be kicking yourself. I mean, absolutely. But I mean, the thing is about this is not really the time of year that anyone buys their heating oil, particularly not in the Northern Hemisphere. So, uh, yeah, there are going to be people out there pretty happy if you can play the long game. Well, let's, uh, let's go beyond our domestic requirements and, and see what's happened to our fund managers, Frank. Uh, because, uh, Frank, you've been, you've been looking at what the uh, energy uh, fund managers have been doing, haven't you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just to show you how unfathomable this event was before it happened, I tried to put the price of WTI Cushing into Morningstar, and it wasn't even able to generate a figure. You know, it wasn't set up for the eventuality that it could go negative. Um, uh, it was probably being ruled out as an error. I'm sure there's some, uh, some traders out there that wish it was, energy futures traders. Fortunately, that wasn't the case. You know, those contract holders probably didn't get very much or very little, had to pay people. I actually spoke to a derivatives trader, not energy futures, um, in the week. And he said he left the office when uh, oil went below zero bound to call his wife to tell him it ha- her it happened. Um, she wasn't particularly interested, but he was still really pumped about it. And, you know, it takes a lot for them to leave their desks. Um, I'm making light of this a little bit, but I think it will stand out as the day that, that we look back at when we, when we analyze the crisis as sort of the biggest biggest moment in financial markets. Yes, it's a nuance to do with how the futures market works, but um, you know, I think it, it'll be the thing that people learn about. Um, I don't think what people are really focusing on is the disconnect between the share prices of the companies that mine and refine and transport the oil um, and the price of the underlying itself. So Brent Blend, I'm gonna stay with Brent because I can generate the figure, is off 70, 65% since uh, the equity market sell-off on February 19th. It has fallen 25% since the equity market sell-off stopped on March 24th. Now you compare that to energy equity, the global energy index, that's 36% down over that time frame. So, you know, a little over half that. 
and it's up 36% since the equity market sell-off finished. Now, you know, why that's the case is, is probably because, you know, the, the whole negative oil was, was just a, a sort of blip. But also one of my colleagues in the US office was saying that he felt that oil is really a, a sort of barometer for global health. And, you know, I think that implies that people still think there's going to be a sharp recovery. Bear in mind that no one is really profitable at $20 a barrel. I think even Aramco in Saudi Arabia would struggle with, with making any profit at that level. I think they lost a trillion in market cap, I read somewhere. What was that? Two-thirds of their market cap? Well, something like that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think um, also they really pounce on Shell as well. The Saudi wealth funds just, um, yeah, they are, you know, going into Shell like anything because they think there is going to be some kind of recovery, I guess. I think I just want to point out because um, the negative prices, actually, of the future was because it's on that day that you could either buy or sell for delivery for May. So I think even though we've seen, you know, that blip, it did go up the next day, you know, to $10 a barrel. But we might see this again when, you know, you have to have delivery in June. You might go negative again because at right. the moment, you know, industries have ground to a halt. You rely on oil. You know, if you think about, for example, airlines, you know, they're grounded at the moment. So EasyJet, for example, you know, they, well, they use they need oil, for example, um, you know, but they're not actually you know, needing it at the moment. They don't need the huge quantities. So you have the share prices plummeting of these kind of companies. But one of the other things is, is the knock-on effect on other industries that you're having as well, you know, from this oil blip. Because if you think about, for example, haulage companies as well, you know, they're, using, they're big users of oil. Um, then you have the supermarkets, you know, taking delivery, Royal Mail, for example, you know, all of these, you know, they have large distribution networks and rely you know they need this kind of oil but airlines are going to be affected for delivery of these as well so you are you know my in-laws for example they have a haulage company and they have been impacted even though they get more and more contracts in it is about you know getting what they need for delivery I'd like to pick up on um, Frank's point about oil as a barometer of, of, of health, I think you said, Frank. I think, I think there's an there's a important nuance there. I think uh, oil is a barometer of sentiment. It's yeah. economic sentiment. So I th but, but, but I would argue there's a strong case for saying that, that oil used to be a barometer. Of, so it's a barometer of sentiment. It used to be a barometer of economic health. It won't necessarily be so going forward because if if it's true that we're seeing this massive shift into ESG-driven strategies, and you know climate change and the E part of ESG is is so high on everyone's agenda, well, will oil companies be? You know, will oil consumption be the barometer of economic health going forward? I would think that's highly questionable. I mean, I'll come back to that, I think, a bit later. I mean, one thing on the airlines is obviously they hedge a lot of their future oil exposure using these contracts. You better hope they dumped it. Or, you know, some of those airlines that are already stretched uh, are going to be in even more dire straits. Um, in terms but, of the but what does this mean for fund managers, though, Frank? That's, that's what I think we, you know, we, we should drill into. What does all this yeah, so mean I, for fund managers? In, in terms of our performance rates, uh, pretty high in March, actually, among traditional energy fund managers. Um, 61% of the 134 sort of traditional energy funds that we track outperformed the falling index in March. They weren't going home happy. Still, on average, you know, the sector fell 28%. Um, a lot of that actually has been in the master limited partnership space in the US. So this is a sort of tax efficient vehicle for capital intensive projects like 
you know, mining, refining of oil. And it's, it's, it's everything. They're used very widely in the energy sector, almost exclusively. They mine, refine, transport, store, and, and deliver it to the end customers. So, you know, it's very much been the sharp end of it. That's where, the, that's where this, you know, event has happened in Oklahoma, you know, in the Cushing market. And, um, you know, as I said, a lot of them done pretty well on a relative basis. I think a lot of that's because people weren't particularly constructive on the price of U.S. shale to begin with and have been on the defensive. One fund is the Transamerica MLP Energy Fund, a couple hundred million dollars. Um, it's run by citywide AAA rated John Frey. He felt 15% less than the falling index in March. So that's a pretty good return for an otherwise you know, diabolical uh, month. What about any, any action in the fixed in, interest market? Uh, you know, because a lot of people would have been going into less highly rated energy bonds for a bit of, for a bit of return. Uh, so just, just quickly on the equity market before we move on to fixed income. Sorry. Yes. Some, some good sellers, some good buyers rather of, uh, of long energy mutual funds. The BGF, BlackRock, Global Energy Fund, that took in sort of 400 million in the month. So actually, in terms of the flows coming into energy during March, they were quite positive, and, and they've probably done pretty well, given equities of up 36%. Okay. Yeah. What about think, fixed um, interest? Uh, fixing, before going on to that, but um, for example, for equity markets as well, I think we need to remember as well, because, I mean, this isn't, I wouldn't call this a short-term blip, but it is, you know, um, around the markets and what is happening at the moment. So looking long term, you know, we are seeing the likes of BP and Shell, a rolled up Shell, you know, the share prices are going up, you know, there is some kind of recovery happening in April. So, you know, as soon as these um, global lockdowns are lifted, you know, people will, you know, start flying again, they'll be driving around, you know, and trading, you know, all of this will still happen and oil should have some kind of a bounce back. So I think if we look in longer term, and I think these rated managers um, that we are highlighting as well, they are looking for the long term, not these um, short, shorter term blips. So if they've got BP or Shell, they might be, you know, reducing holdings or, you know, even upping their holdings in these firms. Um, I just wanted to mention one manager um, in the actual uh, the USITS um, range is Philip de Bloch. Now he has a fund, um, KBC Equity Oil Fund, and he does invest in the oil sector, refining, you know, crude oil, et cetera, and is waiting for a rebound, you know, in the oil prices. And he's double A rated. He has gone up in the ratings. And um, for example, his against his benchmark, he was up in Q1 as well as in March. So as you know, Frank mentioned that there's quite a lot of managers who actually outperformed in this sector. It is, I think, is also just knowing to hold on to your longer term bets because they have chosen those stocks for a reason that can bounce back after some, you know, this is, okay, this is a deep crisis, but they will still, as the economy starts reopening up, they will bounce back. Cool. Frank, are you ready to talk about fixed interest yet? Fixed interest actually isn't on the table this week. Oh, I meant, I meant in, the, in the energy sector. The I mean, I can, can sort of make something up if you'd like. <laughs> Don't make things up, Frank. No. Don't make things up. Can I just chuck something in about airlines? Because I think that there's a – I mean, look, one of the things that makes all of this so um, – so worth talking about in a way is the fact that nobody knows what the hell is going to happen. Nobody really has any, any, you know, nobody has any visibility uh, about what the end result of this situation is and when, you know, when lockdown ends, when economies reopen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the airline thing is quite interesting because uh, you could look at it two ways. 
on the one hand, everyone's saying, oh, you know, airlines could well be in serious trouble for a long time to come. No more business travel, et cetera, et cetera. People, you know, everyone using Zoom for their work meetings, airlines suffer as a result. But the flip side of that is that one thing people are going to be absolutely desperate to do when they come out of this is go on holiday. So yeah. if, you look at the, yeah. if you look at the ratio of airline traffic that is driven by holidaymakers versus business travelers, well, I think, I think I'm right in saying that it comes down pretty heavily on the holiday side. So the idea that airlines are going are gonna, to you know, fade away as a result of this is, is, is not entirely consistent. A lot of the margins they make are from the business travelers. Those are the people. Business travel is more profitable, Frank. Totally agree. But the idea that suddenly airlines will no longer be, I mean, you know, EasyJet doesn't, doesn't work on business travel, does it? There's, and there's also going to be, you know, a, a degree of, uh, of price seat rationing and, and prices could go up. Uh, Emirates issued a statement there this week. They're gradually cranking up again very slowly. But no middle seats are going to be occupied. Uh, all sorts of uh, all sorts of other bells and whistles will be taken away. Uh, so you know, if they've got two thirds of the capacity in the economy, they're going you know they're going to price those seats accordingly and and get their get their payload up. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a long way of saying to Angus's point, no one really knows uh, what's going to happen at, at the end of all this. Now, I can tell you one thing, though, Greta Thunberg is going to be happy about all of this <laughs> with all the climate. Well, not um, if, maybe not if oil is zero dollars, you know. Uh, no, not at all. Exactly. Yeah, price goes down, dem demand goes up. But uh, yeah. let's, get, let's get back to Angus's point earlier, you know, about, you know, have we reached peak oil? Peak, uh, peak oil, I interviewed Michael Liebreich earlier this, this month, who says he thinks we, we have in any case, uh, even before this. Uh, so, you know, and that leads you on to the greater interest that we have in, in ESG funds, uh, which are all the rage. Uh, you know, will the pandemic accelerate interest in that? Uh, Nisha, I don't know. Yeah, I think You've it will do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just um, to give a figure out there. So a recent Bank of America Merrill Lynch report um, found that the top 20% um, of ESG ranked stocks outperformed the U.S. market by more than five percentage points um, during the recent sell-off. Uh, we are kind of seeing this. So you got the oil route. So these ESG firms wouldn't you know, have um, any kind of holdings in these kind of companies anyway. So they have you know, made you know, a good comeback in the sense of doing better. Um, so you've got, um, it's not just down to that. It's also um, having um, healthcare, um, not having you know much consumer staples in there, but ESG, you know, it has really shown so far that it is worth considering. You know, these um, strategies. Um, I just wanted to point out uh, a couple of managers who um, are from Sheridan's, um, Charles Summers and Catherine Davidson, um, both AAA managers. Um, Charles Summers has actually um, just received his first AAA rating, so he's actually gone up in the ratings this month. And they manage uh, the Schroeder Global Sustainable Growth Fund. Um, so for, with this, you know, going up to a AAA, especially for Summers, that was down to their holdings in Roche, um, which really helped performance. I mean, that's a healthcare firm. It recently received FDA approval um, for its first commercial test for COVID-19. So as a result, you know, people have, you know, well, invested in this company even more, you know, uh, putting their weights higher. Um, they're quick to um, create innovative profit, um, I mean, products. And also then you have, they also had Tencent. And then that's on a different side. 
online, mobile gaming, fintech, clouds, computing, all online, really deal um, for them. And also, you know, jumping on this COVID-19, they also established a $100 million relief fund for the pandemic. So it just, you know, that has all the ESG factors in it and social side as well, you know, really doing something for, you know, the communities. So I think those kind of managers have really um, shown their worth in a sense, you know. Can I chuck something in here, Nisha, that I think is really important to remember with all this analysis of uh, ESG funds. You know, it's great that ESG funds have have done well during this period, and and a a lot of them have protected capital better than the sort of non-ESG equivalents. And, and that has kind of blown away to some extent, this idea that ESG was somehow a moral tax on returns. Um, but actually, they don't need to be better. They just need to not be worse. Yeah. And the, um, I think that's something that often gets overlooked. Uh, I mean, ESG is not going away. So, so long as your ESG fund is, is as good as its non-ESG equivalent, then that's absolutely fine. I mean, I see CityWire Selector this morning's reporting um, – that BlackRock have launched an ESG version of a $9 billion unconstrained bond fund. And uh, it feels to me like we're going to see more and more of this, of the, the, yeah. the ESG parallels of existing strategies being launched oh, no, yeah. and, and essentially you know, they, going on to become the default option rather than the yeah. non-ESG. It is, almost, it is giving the choice to the investor as well. I think these companies, you know, having their ESG f- versions and some, you know, they just want the returns, you know, that, that is fine, you know, but you do have the option. And that, the fact that they have these options, I think is, you know, it's good for, you know, all yeah. investments. And, and then one other thing that I'm hearing a lot about from the fund selector community and also from you know, asset allocation people in the, uh, in the asset managers themselves, you know, we all know there's regulation coming down the pipe on what you can and can't call an ESG fund. There's an EU taxonomy of sustainable companies coming out later this year. And that's going to say that uh, you have to have a certain percentage of companies that are on that approved list in your portfolio to be called an ESG or sustainable fund. And, uh, uh, you know, is it, is it Warren Buffett said that famous thing about when the tide goes out, we see who's swimming naked. I mean, we're going to yep. see who's swimming naked on ESG potentially when that oh, comes out. Definitely. Cause, um, you can badge up a, I've done quite a lot of analysis on ESG funds and there are quite a few out there who have badged their funds as an ESG focused fund. But when you look deep down into their portfolio, you can, well, count on both hands or even more, you know, all the non-ESG focused Yeah, I mean, stocks. absolutely. I mean, a lot of the fund selectors are saying to me that a lot of these so-called ESG funds or sustainable funds are going to be maybe, you know, 10 or 15% in yes. companies that are approved by this EU taxonomy. So that's, a, that's well. got a lot of work to do. Frank, you want to come in here? I can, I can sense it through the... Yeah, so I, I, I want to talk about alternative energy and the, and the impacts in that space, but... Um, First off, I just found it very amusing when uh, Trump rolled out uh, loads of CEOs, captains of industry, saying how he's going to fight the, the coronavirus. This was way back in March. I was in New York at the time. And he's got the CEO of Target and Walgreens. And then he brings out the CEO of Roche, you know, a Swiss company. I imagine Merck and Pfizer weren't particularly pleased when, uh, you know, they're FDA approving this, this Swiss company. He said they're a great company, obviously. He didn't mention what country they came from. Very great company. Great, great company. <laughs> great, great people. Um, we're doing some great work. But on the, on the alternative energy uh, space, you know, I love to be positive about the environment. I want to be positive about the environment. That's probably the better way of saying it. But with oil at $20 a barrel, alternative energy 
is going to struggle, right? It, it's only just about competing. And part of the reason the oil price has been falling gradually is because of the, the level at which alternative energy providers can pump out, you know, the same megawatts and whatnot. But I just, I just don't see it being, you know, I don't see it being able to cope. I think there's going to be a lot of, a lot of companies that go bankrupt, a lot of consolidation. I know they've got subsidies, but I mean, we'll see what happens in that space. As I said, traditional energy equities up 36% since the sell-off ended. The global clean energy index is up 24%. So yeah, it's not down as much. It's actually down 24% since the sell-off began. But I just, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens in that space. It hasn't had quite the same recovery. Um, in terms of the managers we track in this space, about 40% of the, the 30 or so you know, dedicated clean energy funds worldwide outperformed in March. Uh, and a couple of them, you know, people are pretty happy about. So the 900 million uh, Rubico Sam Smart Energy Fund uh, run by Timo Lang, City I rated. So since the beginning of March uh, to the end of yesterday, 24th of April, funds down 6.7%. That's 10% ahead of the Global Clean Energy Index over the same time frame. And another uh, is the Pictet Clean Energy Fund. This is another 800 million fund. Again, it's 10% ahead of the falling market in since, since the beginning of March. And the managers, again, I'm going to butcher these. It's my weekly, my weekly butcher of manager names. Javier or Xavier Cholet, Cholet and Christian Rosing. I think I've done that one right. We'll put, your, we'll put your poor pronunciation down to a poor internet link, Frank. Yeah. Oh, sure, sure. It's got nothing to do with my poor education. So um, they're, not, they're not rated at the moment. Um, but as I said, these are the two most popular ways to, to access the clean energy market. Did really well against the falling market. Good, so, good. Mm-hmm. I guess uh, look, we're going to have to wrap up soon. I guess the uh, point we'll know about the clean energy versus oil battle is, is when they uh, is when they change the uh, the Oklahoma oil storage plant into a massive uh, energy uh, wind energy farm. But we'll see if that's going to happen. Uh, listen, guys, thank you very much again, uh, and thank you all to uh, to everyone who tuned in. We're going to be back next week. And don't forget about the Ratings Radar monthly newsletter, uh, which will be winging its way to you very soon, filled with more insight on fund manager performance. If you're not on the list already, you can sign up today by emailing us at ratingsradar at citywire.co.uk. So until then, it's goodbye from us all, and we'll see you again next week. Bye. Thank you.